Hello everyone and welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. I'm your host, Eddie Pongen, and with me here in the studio is my friend and colleague, Niklas Savos. How are you today? I'm great. Uh, I've been really looking forward to, to the interview today. So have I. In today's episode of Investing by the Books, we have the great pleasure of speaking to Greg Zuckerman. Greg has worked for Wall Street Journal since 1996, where he is an investigative reporter writing about business and investing. He is a three-time winner of the Gerald Loeb Award, the highest honor in business journalism. And Zuckerman is the author of several books, including A Shot to Save the World and The Greatest Trade Ever. Which of his books will we talk about today? Today we will learn more about Greg's masterpiece, The Man Who Solved the Market, describing how Jim Simons launched the quant revolution and created the greatest money-making machine in financial history. And as the subtitle suggests, the book is about quantitative investing. So why is this relevant for us who are more fundamental and value-oriented investors? Well, first of all, I think it's valuable for all investors to understand how the quants are, are impacting the market. And uh, Greg has done a great job uncovering this. And to me, I also find the story a good reminder of just how many factors that are involved when making decisions, the importance of finding and refining your edge, and uh, also that we need to be long-term to avoid emotional reactions. Uh, What do you think makes this story special? What Jim Simons and his team has achieved with the Medallion Fund is truly remarkable and uh, the returns are are almost unreal and scoring average annual gross returns of more than 60% for over 30 years I mean that's crazy and even after the high fees the average has been about 40% per year beating legendary investors like George Soros, Peter Lynch and not least actually Warren Buffett. The Man Who Solved the Market was first published by Penguin Books in 2019 and has become both a New York Times and a Sunday Times bestseller. We are thrilled to have its author on the show today. Here comes our conversation with Greg Zuckerman. Hello, Greg, and welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. Oh, great to be here. Where are you located today? I'm in New York City in the offices of the Wall Street Journal, Midtown Manhattan. And in our view, you are a world-class investigative reporter in business and investing. So I would like to begin by asking which interest came first? Was it journalism or finance? It was finance. So I'm someone who fell in love with the world of finance, world of business, world of trading at a young age. I was, as a, as a, as a young boy, um, investing and, and losing all my money uh, at a young age. I was in camp, I remember, and counselor would, would bring me back Barron's on his day off, the Barron's magazine, and I was calling a broker from camp, from a payphone, and, 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 and trading, and, and I really lost it all. <laughs> but it was good education, and um, I, I've always been fascinated by companies. I remember looking at the back of a Skippy in, in the United States. Skippy is a peanut butter uh, jar, um, and I remember looking at the back of the jar and, and figuring I would it would be a company called Skippy, Skippy Corporation, and instead it's all, it was owned by some conglomerate, Procter and Gamble, or somebody. And I thought that was fascinating how. The company was putting different brands together, a jelly brand and a, and a peanut butter brand and h- how companies work. So I was always fascinated by business and by investing and, and, and trading. And how, how did you end up in uh, working with, with journalism then? Yes. Yeah, so it's a complicated, uh, evolving question. Basically, I stumbled into it. I tried different businesses. I tried to work on Wall Street and I... Um, and I graduated university and I traveled Europe and, and elsewhere for a little bit. And I got to Wall Street at a 
very difficult time. In 1989, it was um, a few years after the uh, Wall Street had crashed, and there wasn't much hiring going on, especially for someone like me. I, I, came, I went from a, to a liberal arts school. I didn't really have any experience on Wall Street, so I had a passion for investing in business, but no experience whatsoever, and I didn't know anyone. My father was a teacher. I didn't really know about any Wall Street, so I started two different um, companies working, putting conferences together, and I got fired from both those jobs, and I really didn't know what to do with my life, and then I saw an advertisement in the newspaper. Back then, that's how jobs um, were, were found. You look in the newspaper, this is sort of 1990 at this point, and they were advertising a job to be a reporter, a financial reporter, and I took a test. I didn't have any clips. I never worked for a newspaper. It didn't cross my mind to be a journalist. So they gave you a test, and the test is to write about a leaked document, a pretend leaked document. And I remember taking that test thinking to myself, wait, there's a job where you can get paid to write about business? What, this is what I should be doing. This isn't a job. This is fun. I always loved newspapers. I always loved writing, and I loved Wall Street, but I never thought about doing it as a job, as a profession. And I said, wow, right then I remember taking that test and thinking this is what I should be doing. This isn't, a, a, this is just plain fun. Yeah, the best jobs are really just fun and, and a, an extension of your hobby, I think. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And it has taken you very far. You are now an accomplished uh, journalist and you have won the prestigious Gerald Loeb Award three times. So which one are you most proud of? Um... I guess I'm most proud. I've done a bunch of big stories. I broke the London Whale story, the trader at J.P. Morgan who uh, racked up uh, billions of dollars of losses without the bank knowing about it. Um, but the the Bill Gross story, I, I revealed the tension behind the scenes between Bill Gross and Mohammed El Arian, the two biggest names at a company called PIMCO several years ago, the big bond um, behemoth. And um, wrote a series of stories, front page stories there that eventually led to the split and Bill Gross leaving. So I've done a number of different stories I'm proud of at the Wall Street Journal. But I think the, the story I'm most proud of is a story about um, a young man whose sister died um, in 9-11, September 11th, and uh, in the tragedy, in the attacks. And... Uh, he wanted to find out what happened in her last moments. And together we worked on that for over a year and tried to recreate the story of his sister, Marissa. And you can Google and find that story. I'm very proud of it just because it, it, it shared um, her story with the world. And also it was, it was his journey. And it was a story just as much about him as about her and how he came to grips with the tragedy years later and, and, together we we recreated her life and her last moments well that's that's really touching and, and looking forward to to read that uh, and uh, and greg you have you have now worked at uh, wall street journal for more than 25 years and are the author of several books and we have heard you say that uh, the man who solved the market was the toughest one to write why is that yeah so the man who solved the market is a book about Jim Simons and his firm Medallion. The fund is called Medallion and the firm is called Renaissance Technologies. And they are the greatest, I don't know how you call them, traders slash investor. Um, they, they trade, they're a trading firm and they're the best. They have the best record of anybody, but they're also 
the most secretive. And that's why it was the most difficult book because they didn't want this book written. Jim Simons eventually spoke to me for the book. We sat down for about 12 or so hours over several weeks. But even in our last meeting, he said, Greg, we don't want this book. I'd rather you didn't write this book. Is there any way for you not to write this book? So they 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 tried to prevent me from writing this book to the to the point where I was making interviews, I was scheduling interviews with Jim's competitors, with competitors to this firm, Renaissance Technologies. And at the last moment, they would text and say, "Sorry, I can't meet with you today, Greg." And, and I would say, well, "Well, why?" And they said, "Well, Jim asked us not to talk to you." And, and again, keep in mind these are. Jim Simon's competitors, but everyone's sort of in, either in fear or in awe of, and has so much respect for Jim Simon's and his colleagues at Renaissance that they, didn't, they don't even, even their competitors didn't want to talk to me. So let alone employees. And I was up night just worrying that I was getting really good stuff about the early days um, at this firm, but, but I was scared to death. Who would want to read a book about a firm if you can't tell the secrets. If you can't tell what's happening right now, you can't get behind the scenes, get inside the company, not just years earlier, but, but currently. So I, I was really nervous and I didn't even, they gave me a, um, a check, a, an advance, and I didn't even cash that advance for months because I was, I thought I'd have to give it back. So yeah, it was a difficult book to write. So what has the firm said after you published the book? So I saw Jim Simons recently, about 10 days or so ago. There's a film that's just come out about his efforts to determine, to discover the origins of the universe, the first moments and how the world began. And I saw him and he said something to me. He and his wife said something like, we thought the book was generally accurate. Something like that. He's not a very effusive guy. So, and that's the... Since I've gotten from various people within the company, they've um, they weren't happy that I wrote the book, but in general, they thought it was generally accurate. So, for those who are not familiar with uh, Renaissance Technologies, uh, can you briefly tell our listeners ab- about the firm? Of course. So, there's this guy Jim Simons, who uh, was an academic, was a mathematician, and a very accomplished one. He goes down in history as one of the greatest geometers. In, in modern times, and he did things like breaking code for the U.S. government in the Cold War against the Russians, and he led academic departments um, in the United States. So he was a well-known mathematician. And then, around 1978, a long time ago, he decided to see if he can beat the market, use some of his mathematical and scientific um, skills. In, in the world of finance. And back then, no one was really doing that. There weren't quants back then. He's the pioneer. And it took him years to figure it out. And that's what my book is about. So he starts off as a trader like you and I would be, sort of looking at markets and trying to figure out where things are going, and the gold and different currencies and stocks and bonds, etc. And he realizes it's driving him crazy. Some days are, are good days. Some days are, are awful days. Physically, he finds it really difficult. He's having stomach issues. It's it just wearing on him. And generally, he made pretty good money as a traditional, what we call macro investor. But um, 
he, he figures there's got to be a better way. And he's a mathematician. And he figures there's this assumption he has that there are patterns in the market that most people are, are missing. And he sets out to discover these patterns, identify them below the surface. Sometimes they're very short-term in orientation. And he also sets out to hire, and this is the key, some of the best and brightest mathematicians and scientists in the world. And his skill, his, his um, genius is in managing genius. In other words, yeah, he eventually figures out these patterns and ways to bet on stocks and bonds and other markets, but his recruiting talent is really what sets him apart. And this company, Renaissance Technologies, starts a fund called the Medallion Fund, and it goes down in history. It's, it's got returns to this day of an, annualized returns of over 60% a year before fees, which is just no one's ever come close. You name the investor, George Soros, Ray Dalio, anybody famous, Warren Buffett, and, and Jim Simons and his team at Renaissance Technologies has a much better record. It's really a fascinating story. And I think in the book, you really write it in a, such an engaging way that I get uh, so inspired. Like I feel uh, this intellectual challenges, this hard work and the focus and curiosity and, and this work for freedom and, and the aspiration to be the best. And um, as you write in the book, Simons, he wanted to be a mathematician or a scientist from like a very early age. And when he was eight years old, the family's doctor said that you can't make any money in mathematics. And then he replied that, well, I want to try. <laughs> And by 2019, he was worth $23 billion. So what's your takeaway from this story? Yeah, it's ironic, right? Um, back then, there was this assumption that if you wanted to make money, mathematics wasn't the best route to do it. Today, it may be the best route. Um, the world is full of quants, data an an analysts, data researchers. Up and down Wall Street, you go to a firm, you know, I, I work for the Wall Street Journal and I'll get a tour of someone's firm. It could be in London, it could be in New York, etc. And they'll they'll boast, they'll boast, they'll show off. Oh, Greg, over there is our PhD. Oh, in that corner is our data scientist. Or the hire people that who hire. Even if you are a fundamental investor today, you need to have some comfort level, if not skill, in data analysis. But that wasn't the case back then. And Jim, his whole life is about chasing his passion, his, his love, his, um, this is what he, he enjoys. And there is some lesson there. It's a, a cliche at every university in the United States. I'm sure elsewhere as well. On graduation day, someone gets up and says, chase your passion. You know, if, if, if every day is your, it's a hobby for you, then, then um, you'll do better. It's, if it's your love and, and it's what I do. And I've kind of, that's a maxim that I believe in. It's kind of what I've done with my career, but that is, there's a reason why sometimes people give this advice and it's a cliche because there's some accuracy, there's some truth to it. And with Jim Simons, it's borne out. Yeah, this is what he loves, mathematics. And, and it's, it's not just mathematics. It's um, trying to find the truth and beauty. He really talks about beauty a lot. And it's a fascinating way to, to, to look at life. And he, 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 the way he looks at it, he's, he's trying to find beauty and, and trying to find answers be it an answer in, in the market or in mathematics or again this the search for for the for life and how life began the existence of life and it, it's it's all about trying to understand um 
in, in getting to, to answer, figure out what, what, answer, what the answers are in, in, in life. And it can be applied to any career. That's the beauty of it. And I wrote this book, yeah, it's about trading and investing and mathematics and science, but it's about just finding a passion in life and, and um, focusing. And, and Jim Simons, when you ask him, and I've asked him, what's a success, secret to success, he'll say it's his tenacity. It's his unwillingness to give up. And if you think about it, so he spent from 1978 until 1990 trying to figure out a system to beat the market. And he was well past the age of 50. And that's pretty impressive, quite honestly. And I've written about some other people in my life. Um, John Paulson, who, who anticipated the financial meltdown in 2007 and 2008. And he figured out derivatives and he was past the age of 50. And as I get older, I have more admiration for these gentlemen and women as well who apply themselves at a late age in life and maybe have hit setbacks and obstacles and, and, and persevere and have got this tenacity. And I, and I keep, I'm really drawn to these kinds of characters. So Jim Simons really epitomizes that theme of, of, of not giving up and believing in oneself and, and trying to find uh, answers and, and, and having this tenacity. And I mean, as you, as you said, Renaissance Medallion, Medallion Fund has, has clearly been a huge success. And uh, during this time where they have uh, been operating, many other traders and, and big funds have crashed. For example, long-term capital management as the most famous example. But uh, I mean, is there any is there any bit of survivorship bias in this story? How how has Renaissance really avoided a, a collapse? Well, there is survivorship bias in in what I write about in general. I mean, you can criticize me. Hey, Greg, you write about the survivors, like you said, the success stories, and I do that as a career, both at the Wall Street Journal and my books. My books are about success stories, and I do hesitate. <laughs> in drawing lessons about those people I, I write about because, like you said, for every Jim Simons or John Paulson that that survived and that succeeded and that ignored the experts, a lot of my books are about individuals, odd individuals, quirky, self-confident individuals who ignore the conventional wisdom. So you don't want to get too carried away with, with drawing lessons. I don't think one should always ignore <laughs> conventional wisdom. For every Jim Simons, there are nine other people maybe who tried and failed and embarrassed themselves and didn't have much of a, anything to show for it. But, but, but and, and yet, I do think that you can draw um, some lessons from these successes. And yes, Renaissance is a survivor, but for, for good reason. There are reasons why Renaissance has succeeded and long-term capital didn't, or most other firms. And we can go through some of these and I can give you sort of these secrets. A lot of people, generally people like my book, I get good reviews, etc. It still sells well. But the criticism I hear sometimes is, well, Greg, I want to understand how they did it. Why don't you tell me? I want to do it. I want, I want the secret. I want the secret. I want the equation. I, I want to be able to do what Jim Simons has done. And one thing I do regret in my book, and um, I don't have a paperback version of it yet, but if I do, I'm going to lay out for people. It's all in the book, frankly, but I want to lay out clearly for people what the secrets to Jim Simons' success are. 
because there are a number of, of secrets, I would argue, or, or lessons that we can draw, but I don't put them all together in, in a list for the reader. And maybe I need to do that for a new version of the book. And I mean, uh, it's, it's quite funny because, I mean, both me and Eddie are fundamental investors who we went to Omaha uh, this, this last year. And a, f- a famous question that, that Buffett always gets is, what discount rate do you use? And it's more or less similar to, to the question you get about Simons, but it's it's a bit more it's more it's a bit more difficult than a than a number and a, and a, and a model. It's it's something something more. And uh, I mean, we note that uh, fundamental investors such as Richard Lawrence, that we talked with in episode twenty five, describes that a lot of his success is driven by the, that he has kept the fund size capped, and and Medallion has also capped its fund. How important do you think that has been? Really, really important. You identified one of the most important reasons why they've succeeded and others have failed. Just taking a step back, I thought you were going to ask me, is one of the lessons that you can't be a fundamental investor, you need to be a quant because Jim Simons is a quant. He's the pioneer and he's destroyed most everybody else in terms of performance. The, The irony is that in his personal portfolio, He's not so different from you and I. <laughs> um, there's this anecdote, on, I don't know if you remember from the book, where the market is collapsing just a few years ago, and he's watching from a hotel television, the, the lobby of a hotel a hotel lobby, and, or maybe, I think it was a bar actually, and and he calls up his broker and, his, and he says, shouldn't we be buying some protection here? And I pointed out to Jim, I said, Jim, you're the quant, you, you're a systematized Uh, investor. It's all about the systems, deferring to the systems and taking advantage of the emotions of others. And he didn't really appreciate the the, the irony there that he was panicking in his portfolio, which is what Renaissance takes advantage of um, um, most every other day. And and I think Jim would say there's there's still room for fundamental investors, but you've got to really have a niche, some strategy that um, helps you and that you've got some competitive advantage. But for most investors, I do think it's a mistake to try to beat the market and outsmart the market and think you can beat guys like Jim Simons. And you need to have some sort of system. I do believe in having a system. It doesn't mean that you can't uh, have a fundamental overlay over that system, but you need a system in, in life, I think. So if you're a pilot, if you're um a, a surgeon, there's your checklists you have that have been proved to be really successful and, and, and helpful in preventing you from making huge mistakes. I think that's one of the lessons from Jim Simons. Even if you aren't a, quant, a pure quant, you need to have some sort of system that, that works, that you can defer to, that bails you out, that you can rely on in, in, in times of crisis. I forgot what the, sorry, you had asked me a question. I think I veered off that question to tackle a different question. No, it was a really interesting answer, and I think on the response you gave, I mean, we have talked to a lot of uh, of guests who have, who have spoken about the importance of having a good process and, and not focusing on the outcome, which most investors actually do. Exactly. So yes, process. A, yes. Oh, and the original question was about keeping the size of the fund small. And that's exactly right. So again, this other guy I wrote about, John Paulson, and in my earlier book, he made $20 billion over two years, 2007 and 2008, the greatest trade ever. That's the name of the book. That's what I described the trade. And then he basically, more or less, has been on a losing streak ever since. And one of the reasons is he got too big. And 
it, I, I understand that temptation. You've done really well. Investors want to throw money at you. You think you're really smart and you are smart and you've done well. And, and frankly, I've seen this from my work at the Wall Street Journal. When you become a billionaire, you tend to only have people around you who tell you how brilliant you are. Very few of these people have critics or anybody who gives you critique around you. And, and frankly, you ignore them at that point. I've just done this amazing trade. Who is this analyst or somebody else or PM going to tell me that I'm, I'm, I'm making a mistake? I'm, I'm going to start buying, in John Paulson's case, bank stocks or gold, um, pharmaceutical companies because, hey, I just did really well and I, I used my brain and why shouldn't I rely on my intellect and intuition like I did last time? And, and they got too big. They always get too big. George Soros got too big. Michael Steinhardt got too big. Over and over, Julian Robertson. They always do. And I've been writing about these guys for, for years. They always think I'm going to be the exception. And I can smaller funds, smaller names you don't even heard of. They all think they can be the ones that can manage a lot of money. And it's just really hard. And getting back to your question, Medallion has always capped the fund. For a while, it was $5 billion. Years later, it was $10 billion. More recently, it's $15 billion. But still, that's relatively small. They, these guys could be managing hundreds, literally hundreds of billions of dollars investors would give them. And they've kept it small. And they've kicked out all their outside investors. It's just them, their own money and some friends and family, employees, etc. So that is one of the key secrets of their success. Kept the fund and kept the ego. Yes. So, yeah, one of the arguments they say why long-term capital went down is they um, fell in love with their models and they believed in their models too much. So Jim Simons and Renaissance, they've got models and they run their firm, deferring to their models, but they also are a little more humble about them and realize they could have made a mistake and they don't put too much money on any single trade. Obviously, just it's it's they're a, they're a quant firms, so they're trading all day long and um, never too much on any one strategy, etc. But they're also humble about maybe they made a mistake and they've got something wrong. I mean, it's easy for them to say they're humble and they're modest, and who knows where the chips are. Down. I mean, I think they, they they've got a, a, a lot of self confidence as well. But relative to people like long term capital, they don't double down like those guys and. and and put on a lot of leverage and um, yeah, they've stayed humble about their models was their argument anyway. You talked about the importance of, of sticking to a, a strategy that, that works. And I mean, some use fundamentally driven strategies, other use momentum strategies or even technical analysis. Uh, can you tell us about what, what type of information Renaissance used to, to gain an edge in markets? Yeah, so they do a lot of things well. Um, but they don't use any one kind of strategy. If, if you're going to call them anything, they're StatArb. They basically look at prices and compare to history. And when they get out of whack historically, they take advantage. But that's a really, really simplified version of, of what they do. They will test and trade every strategy out there. If you've got... A data set, well, they've purchased every data set and they were way behind before everybody else in, in getting that. Today, it's easier for people to match their data um, 
uh, ability to, to track down data and test data, but they will, any, any thesis, any possibility, they will have people, if, if you can come up with it, they've tested it. So they will test anything and any kind of, they're always looking for new data, um, data sets. And they were early in doing things like cleaning data. Now it seems obvious, but it wasn't back then. And that's one of their advantages. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't only Jim, as you'll see from the book. The book is called The Man Who Solved the Market. And it's about Jim Simons. And he's the key character in my book. But there's so many other people that were necessary that Jim could not have done this without, including a guy named Sandor Strauss, who early on said, well, well, why is this data look the way it does? I'm going to go back and, and clean it and test it and make sure that we don't have something wrong in this data set that we bought. And that was not Jim Simons' idea. That was Sandor's. He was just sort of really focused on that early on when nobody else was doing that. They also were very early on testing their and, and deciding and evaluating their impact on the market. So it's one thing to come up with a really great trade, but another one to be able to put the trade on, place that trade without affecting the prices too much and deciding when to place those trades. And they, they believe they're better than anybody else at that and, and figuring out when to place the market and um, finding alpha when nobody else sees it and getting in and out of the market in secretive kind of ways. So it's so much more than developing the trade. It's a little bit like in the startup world where an idea is a dime a dozen. The idea is just the, the first thing, the first obvious step, but it's um, execution. And the same kind of thing with, that's key. And same kind of thing with Jim and his colleagues I mean, at, at Renaissance. It's their impact on the market, which is key. But they will um, test everything and do any and, and any kind of data set. If you've thought about it, they, they've purchased it and, and figured out a, a way to incorporate it. Michael Mobosen that we had on the on the podcast earlier has a quite nice framework for different, um, um, I mean, structures of the market that is uh, inefficient. Uh, he calls them behavioral, structural, informational, and analytical. Do you think any of these uh, structures? I mean, I mean, do they use uh, more or less all of them? And and I can explain them if you want, if 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 you need more more information on them. But but do you think like uh, because Many many people we speak to talk about that the behavioral, uh, I mean, piece is the is the one that will be uh, longest lasting. I mean, you mentioned, for example, that people can buy the data set more or less that that Simons and the firm uh, does as well now, but but maybe couldn't a few years back. So I mean, it's getting more and more efficient. But what how do you see it in terms of uh, what would be the most long lasting inefficiencies? So it's funny the people there don't think in those terms i do and you do but when i say to them well wh wh why why is it working <laughs> why do you make so much money are you taking advantage of the behavioral mistakes that we are all familiar with today and when they started no one was writing about that kind of stuff behavioral economics didn't have a name but inherently i do believe they do take advantage of those, the fear and greed and the, the kind of um, the, 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 the stuff that we all discuss and we read about. So they do profit from the mistakes of others, the behavioral um, economics and, and, and other kind of things that we've written about. 
but they don't think about it in those terms. In some ways, they're much more narrow and simple, <laughs> maybe as mathematicians and scientists, they look for oddities. They look for um, repeated patterns in the market that may be fleeting and so short that you wouldn't think there's a way to take advantage of them. And they find a way to, to determine if they are going to repeat enough times so they can profit from it. Um, but I really do believe that their advantage comes from things like, like the way they've structured their, their firm, their company. Um, it's almost like a management book in some ways, my book, as much as a, as, as a trading book. They do things like um, they've got this open architecture where for various reasons, they don't fear the loss of intellectual property. I can get into why. Part, partly it's because you know, the bulk of their, of their team, they're, they're, they're former academics. They're mostly former academics. And they don't really have contact with people in the world of finance like you and I do. So they don't think in terms of leaving Renaissance to go work for Goldman Sachs or go work for another hedge fund. They leave Renaissance to go back to the world of academia. So as a result, and frankly, I think Jim Simons stumbled into this. It wasn't a conscious thing on his part, but it's one of the most important reasons why he's been so successful. He doesn't worry so much about the intellectual property walking out the door and going somewhere else. I write in the book about a few times that did happen and the legal issues and the fighting that went on and the, the tension and, and the, um, the fear within Renaissance as a result. But it's, it's, it's very rare. And when you don't worry about losing your intellectual property, people leaving and going to work for Goldman Sachs or D.E. Shaw, et cetera, you can embrace an open, archi open architecture. And that's what they have done. And what that means is that everybody can see the code that powers their system, powers their trading. And even junior people, it's crazy, even junior employees, they all can see the same code. And as a result, they all are, and, and there's an incentive to work on it, to improve it, even incrementally. And there's this really, this collaborative culture that Jim has developed. And Jim Simons is just a fascinating guy because he's a quant, he's a mathematician, and, and yet he's a really, um, he's very capable of, of managing people. He's really good at managing people. And he developed a system there where people work together and they collaborate. And he once told an, an audience that out at MIT, I believe, he said, the most important thing that we did is develop an open atmosphere. So everybody knows what everybody else is doing and everybody has an incentive to improve on their system. And there's not this, there aren't these fiefdoms that develop within every other firm that I've looked at and, and hedge funds, et cetera. And there's competition and this group versus that group and they fight over bonuses. It's not like that at Renaissance. They generally work together. And even if it means getting a cup of coffee, I'm exaggerating a little bit here for effect, but getting a cup of coffee and if that helps a group improve, then they'll, they'll pitch in and do that. And it's this open architecture that I think is really one of their, their key secrets to success. I mean, we often see that uh, the cultural edge is, is really long lasting for great businesses. And it, it seems to be the same here. I really think that's the case. And people don't appreciate that. Again, you know, as a writer, I, I focus on the criticisms of my work. And again, a lot of people will say, I love the book, Greg, but 
I want a formula, Greg, I want a formula that'll allow me to become a billionaire. And, and frankly, I've asked Jim and other people who work there and, and they would never give it to me, but I also don't get a sense. There is a formula. It's always changing. They wake up nervous that their whatever systems they've got and models and, and they need to be updated and changed. There's always someone working to, 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 to beat them, to beat them. And they, the only reason they stay ahead is because of the culture, I think. And they hire, they hire much better talent than anybody else. Again, when I go on tours and people show me, Hey, Greg, look at that PhD. We've got working on the corner over there. PhDs the Renaissance. Yes. You know, I don't know. Uh, I, I think about Two-thirds of the of the company is full of PhDs. But these aren't just PhDs. These are people who led departments, led the math department, science department, different physics department, et cetera, Stanford, those kind of places. So it's not just that they've got talent. They've got better talent than almost everybody else. And then why, why, why do people go there? Why, why would because they make a ton of money? And um, you know, a lot of these people when before they get there, they're kind of curious about markets, maybe, and they are looking for an intellectual challenge. I don't think they go there necessarily to get rich. But as you guys know, once you're starting to make a lot of money, it becomes a priority. Even if you're an academic who didn't care about money beforehand, money corrupts. And I don't mean that necessarily in a negative way. Whatever. Once you start to make a lot of money, it becomes hard to give that up. So the reason they're so successful is partly because they're so successful. And as a result, they can recruit the best and the brightest. I also definitely think that incentives is one of the key key parts of the success formula here. Uh, but can you yes. can you say a bit more how they divide uh, all the money to the to the company employees and so on? Yeah, they do a better job th- th- than most. It's not perfect, but they have this collaborative culture. They share projects. They work together, and a lot of the way they do that are, are their pay practices. Um, they compensate employees based on medallions results. So there's less of an emphasis compared with most rivals on individual or group results. Now, there's a downside to that, and people have said to me, "Greg, we would love to run our firm like Renaissance does." But what do I do? There's someone, there's a, a woman, there's a man who had a great year. I, I've got to give them a bonus that reflects that great year. Even if the overall firm or fund didn't do well, I've, I'm going to lose that person. And Renaissance just doesn't have the same kind of concerns. You're not going to leave Renaissance. You could, but you generally are not going to leave Renaissance and go work for another hedge fund. You could, you could get a job in, in a in a heartbeat, in an hour. But again, these are academics. They're they're not going to go start a fund. It just doesn't happen. So there's a message that's sent uh, originally by Jim. He doesn't run things day to day, but he built this culture that people need to work together. If you want a bigger bonus, you got to work together and help Medallion, the fund, do better. And coming back a bit to the inefficiencies of the market, I think it's uh, surprising in the book to read that with the phenomenal track record that the, the firm has. I mean, that still one key employee said that they're actually just right 50.75% of the time. So what is your takeaway from that? Yeah, it's still remarkable. I mean, I still, listen, I'm a skeptical, even cynical journalist. I keep waiting for them to mess up. I mean, I've never in my career written about people that didn't eventually 
mess up in an embarrassing way. And frankly, as I was writing this book, I was holding my breath. I mean, it would have been a good book too if they had messed up at the end. That would have been kind of drama at the end and how they blew it. So that would have been awful, but I did worry. I did worry that they were making up their results. You know, that's another thing you always hear. Oh, it's another Madoff, Greg. And there's no way you can beat the market 60% a year for, for every year. So I, I, I did worry. I mean, I'd be embarrassed, right? If I wrote this book and then eventually it turns out that it was all fraud. But I, for <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of different reasons, I don't think that's the case. I'm, I'm pretty certain that's not the case and it hasn't been suggested even subsequently. There are, there, the SEC looked into them and they kicked all their outside investors out. What fraud? I've never heard of a fraud that doesn't want investors. Um, it would defeat the whole purpose of, of making up your numbers. What's the point of making up your numbers if you're not going to take money from outsiders? But yeah, I kept waiting for them to mess, to, to, to have awful results. And even people within the company I've talked to, and I don't know why they talked to me, but there are people that kind of said, yeah, Greg, I, I don't know why, why we're so much better than everybody else. And they don't really spend much time thinking about other firms. So that's part of the problem too. But I wouldn't be shocked if tomorrow I heard that they had an awful year, but I keep waiting for it to happen, but it doesn't. And I mean, uh, when, 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 when you read the book, you see that, uh, I mean, even Renaissance have had uh, tougher periods, but they have been quite short. And uh, as long-term investors, we often talk about the importance of having conviction in the people and the businesses that we own, even when, when the market goes havoc or, or whatever happens, more or less. So with, with automated trading systems, how has Renaissance handled the, the situations when the machines seems out of control? Yeah, so in my book, I do write about certain periods where they have serious losses and there's panic within the firm, but they're really rare. I mean, as an author, there's drama there. So I focus on them. You don't want, there's not much to write about if, you know, all day long, they're just making small amounts of money like a casino and, and beating the market. But there are the, the times when they overrule their systems is really rare and less than ever before since Jim retired. So Jim Simons, as as I said, and if you read the book, you know, he had this background where, yeah, he's a mathematician, he's a quant, but he also is a normal guy who kind of thinks he can beat the market sometimes and has these instincts. He's got he's to fight those instincts, which I just find fascinating. He's got to literally fight those instincts. It's, it's hard to be a quant. It's hard to defer to your system all the time. And Jim always had to fight that impulse. And I write about that. But since he retired, the people running that firm don't have those impulses. They're quants through and through. So they defer to those systems more than ever. So they, I've never, I haven't heard in the last few years where they've overruled their system and their system has gotten better. And so um, that's part of the reason for success. Even when they're not doing well, those short periods, small periods that they fight the temptation to step in and overrule their system. And, and even when they did in the past, a lot of the people internally were upset about that. And, and they were right in the end. They should have just deferred to the system because sometimes the system says to buy more when the markets are going down. So there is a lesson there. If you, if you can develop a system that works and defer to that system, even in a crisis, even when you're panicking, 
generally, it seems like, at least from the Renaissance experience, uh, it, it, it proves a successful strategy. I mean, talking about conviction, I mean, you have done all this work on, on Renaissance and, and you have seen, I mean, how more or less flawless the, 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 the system that they have is. So my question is, how, how big of a percentage of your personal assets would you put into this fund if you could? <laughs> right. So I can't, obviously, because um, I write about them and I'm at the Wall Street Journal. If I had a chance, that's a good question. I don't think I've ever been asked that question. If I had a chance to invest in Medallion, I would put 20 to 30% of my net worth in there. And that's from someone who's cynical and skeptical and has seen most, most places blow up. And again, I wouldn't be shocked if they blew up, but I'd be very surprised. And they have uh, an advantage. They still do. It's crazy to think somehow. But again, the stuff we talked about, the, the talent is better. The the way their culture is better. They're uh, figuring out how they, the, the risk systems are better. We didn't talk about that. They've got great risk systems. I've always emphasized that their, um, their impact on the market, that kind of stuff. So they still have advantages over others so yeah i, I would put 20 to 30 percent i think and you nicholas yeah it's it's harder for me i mean i've read the book and, and i've seen the results but i, I would probably put a, a a substantial amount as well <laughs> <laughs> it's hard not yeah. to yeah but we know from history that medallion fund has been making the most and largest profits during times of extreme turbulence in the markets and uh since the book came out, I mean, 2019, we have had extremely volatile financial markets, pandemic, war in Europe and soaring inflation. So how has the performance been of the fund? It's a good question. So I had good sourcing until about 2021. So they did very well in 2020. And if you remember, that was a crazy, crazy year in the markets. I think they did pretty well 2021. My sourcing has dried up between us. So for various reasons, they're, they're so secretive and they, and they spend a lot of time trying to figure out who my sources are and they give them a hard time, I believe, and they try to track it down. And I also don't want to get too many people in trouble. So I don't, I, I try not, I, I'm not so focused on getting their day-to-day -day results because I feel Bad for I don't want to jeopardize someone's career and life, frankly, and and their access. Most importantly, their access to, to medallion. They kick them out of medallion if they share any of the information. Yeah. And the medallion fund is probably the best quant as we know, and there are many others as well. And you have, uh, as you say in the book, I mean, Jim Simons launched the quant revolution, and the quants have changed the financial markets in many ways, um, and especially the equity markets that we are most interested in. What would you say are the pros and cons for fundamental investors? Well, first, I'm going to give you the cons for people like me. So I don't have as many people to write about like I used to that were just sort of super smart, intuitive, fundamental traders. Guys like David Tepper. I don't know if you're familiar with David Tepper, but to me, he is the guy, the best fundamental investor I've ever seen, trader type. Obviously, you got Buffett, but frankly, Buffett has underperformed for years. In modern times, David Tepper is the best. He's the kind of guy where there are very few times when I'll come away from a conversation with an investor 
and feel dumb and feel like I'm a step behind. And that's the case when I talk to David Tepper and he's not the friendliest guy in the world, but I have to give him a lot of credit for really being uh, just a step ahead and stuff I haven't thought about. He's, I just feel like I'm a, a step or two behind, but there are very few David Tepper. There are very few David Teppers today. It's just really hard for fundamental investors, partly because of the quants, because of guys like Jim Simons. And there's so many people that have automated systems that do well. Let's not go overboard. The quants don't do that much better than fundamental investors. But for all the things that you guys had referred to, it's hard for fundamental investors. It's hard because of the behavioral mistakes that we all make. It's just hard because you don't have any information advantage like you used to. When I started my career, there were ways for traders, for investors to get information from companies that kept them a step ahead. And people have written about Steve Cohen and those kinds of things. And you just can't do that anymore for various reasons. The regulators have cracked down. It's just, yeah, it's just, you can't, it's illegal for some of the stuff that people used to do in the fundamental world. It's not to say that you can't, I think if you can find a niche, some um, competitive advantage, you can still be a good fundamental investor, but it's just really hard, uh, much harder than it used to be. Markets are just more, much more efficient. They really are. And the quants are part of the reason. So it's rougher for people like me. I've been re lately writing about people like Sam Bankman fried at FTX. Those are where the characters, I write about characters. I write about personalities and individuals, strike strikeouts and home runs. And I, it's hard to think of somebody under the age of 50 who has succeeded on a consistent basis. You've got periods where somebody has done well, but year in and year out and kind of like a David Tepper or a, or a, like Dave, look at David Einhorn for years. I would write about him and super smart, thoughtful, great writer, but he's had real tough periods over the last few years. So I'm glad I am not going into my, my profession right now. I'm not at the beginning of my career. There's still people to write about, but they're not the people I loved writing about the, the classic, investor types who used to beat the market and have conviction and passion and figured out information before the next person. It's just harder than it used to be. And coming back to the question, what are the pros for uh, fundamental investors? Well, listen, it depends what your um, holding period is. You, if you're going to compete with somebody like Jim Simons on a short term basis, I think it's impo frankly impossible. I guess if you're going to do small trade in small sizes, maybe you can do it. But the advantage, I would think, for a fundamental investor is if you can, you have a time advantage where you, Jim Simons holds positions moments to months is the way they say it internally. And it could be uh, um, literally seconds to seasons is another way they say it. Um, but if you can... Hold it long term. You want to be a long term investor, months to to years. Then I think you do. You can take advantage of the short term volatility, um, the the panic, the nervousness on the part of investors, the greed. So that that is one way I would advise a fundamental investor if you're going to still try to beat the market, try to do it in a, in a longer term holding period, and try to find some niche. 
let's say it's biotech or something that you know a little bit better than the next person for whatever reason, just to be like a macro investor and trying to time markets and currencies. It just, even for the hedge funds I've written about macro is just really hard. But if there's some sector, some um, strategy that you focus on that you, you, you can um, bring something that maybe others can't, you got some insight perhaps. I, I do think there's, there's possibility there. And if we move over to your work as an in investigative reporter at Wall Street Journal, we previously had uh, Bethany McLean on the podcast and we discussed how the craft of journalism is quite similar in a way to that of investing in terms of laying this puzzle through deep research, doing channel checks and coming to some conclusion. So we are curious to hear about your modus operandi. So I generally collect incriminating photos of people and then just blackmail them. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Um, so yeah, there are similar approaches to an investor, to a good investor, creating a mosaic, creating different types of um, people and being skeptical um, as important as an investor and as important as, as a journalist. Um, I need people to tell me things. It's funny, this new um, AI tool, what is it called? Chat? GPT, um, everyone's talking about, it can write really well, it seems like. So, you know, in some ways my careers or our careers are, are threatened to some extent. And more than ever, I think journalists like myself need to um, rely on and develop sources of information. My job is, is for people, I, I want people to tell me things they shouldn't be telling me, or maybe um, there are reasons why maybe they should be reluctant to, to tell me. They're in a position uh, wh where they, 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 they see things, they hear things that are, are important and are uh, news um, breaking. But um, I, I need to be the person they turn to. And that's my competitive advantage, that I have access to, to people and individuals. And it's also my job to get people to talk. And I do hold series of kind of seminars within the Wall Street Journal for young journalists about getting people to to speak. Why will people speak to me? And, and I want people to talk to me who have very little incentive to talk to me and I got to persuade them to. So that's kind of my job as a journalist and, and nothing illegal, nothing improper. And, and I believe that the um, free flow of information is important for everyone. There are all kinds of reasons why someone should talk to me who otherwise would be reluctant to, to do so. And um, a lot of it, our job has changed and yet it's the same. It's getting someone who works at a firm, who sees a loss, who is worried about the future of their company to tell me, to call me up, to text me, to reach out to me on Signal, to reach out to me on WhatsApp, something like that. And they're going to be biased. They're always biased. And I know that going in and it's my job to um, de determine if what they're telling me is accurate. So in some ways, our job, even though it's 22, almost 2023, in some ways, it really hasn't changed from the beginning of my career in, at the Wall Street Journal in 1996. It's fascinating. In some ways, it has, obviously, but it's still getting people to talk to me and determining if what they're telling me is accurate. And I'm curious to know about your method to get that extra piece of information from people that, that maybe they have, hadn't uh, I mean, thought about sharing before. Yeah, with everyone it's different. There's always, but I need to find 
a reason for someone to open up and talk to me. And sometimes they want to see themselves in the paper. Sometimes they don't want to see themselves in the paper, so they'll talk to me. Sometimes they just want information out there that's going to be out there anyway. They want it to be accurate. They know that we at the Wall Street Journal and me and my books, I try to play it down down the middle. Like there, A lot of people will say, Greg, you know, I like that book, but I, I, I can't decide if I like those characters or not, Greg. It, it, there's some really good things about them, interesting and, and positive, but a lot of negative too. And, and I love that. I, be, I, I believe in the gray. I really do. And I like my characters. A little ambiguous. I, I'm, there are other authors in my space, business journalism, um, famous ones. It's all black and white and they smooth the, the, the edges kind of on the personalities. And they're always are the heroes and the, and the villains. And I don't believe in that whatsoever. I, I believe, I mean, there are obviously some evil people, some evildoers, but um, and some good people and heroes. But generally, people are in the middle there somewhere. And I try to portray that and, and just be accurate and be balanced and play it down the middle. And I tell that to, to people. And then that's why they should talk to me. And there are all kinds of other reasons. I don't want to give too many of my secrets away. But my job is to get people to talk to me. And I've got different methods. And, and they're not coercive. And they're yeah, again, I was kidding about the, the illicit photos. I don't use those. Um, but there are reasons. My I've got to make an argument why it's worth someone's while to talk to me, even why, even when their instincts are not. And you mentioned the haircut approach in another podcast. I, I thought that was yeah. <laughs> funny and fascinating. <laughs> yeah, now we're getting to some of the secrets. Yeah, so the haircut approach is um, I'm going to write about you. You don't have to talk to me. And I, I really don't want to ever be in a position where, and I see this often in business journalism where you kind of like, you owe someone almost, or you feel like you owe, you, you're relying on someone or you're beholden to someone. No, 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 no. I'm at the Wall Street Journal or I'm running this book. You don't have to talk to me. I don't want you to talk to me if you don't want to talk to me. I'm going to give you the reasons why it's worth your while to talk to you. And I believe in those reasons. And I'm a big believer in transparency. And I'm a big believer that information is going to get out anyway. If, if Greg Zuckerman has heard whatever it is in my seat here in New York City at the Wall Street Journal or in my basement at home writing a book, it, it's going to get out. Who are you kidding? You really think that you're going to keep it secret? So my, my approach is, yeah, I'm going to write about you. You don't have to talk to me. But like with a haircut, I'm going to give you a haircut. You can sit still or you can move around, but I, I, I'm going to give you the haircut. And I don't mean that negative and pejorative way, haircut as in I'm going to write about you negatively. Sometimes it's negative, sometimes it's positive, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write about you. And I'm, I'm not, and sometimes people call my bluff. Some, that's their prerogative. Nah, Greg, I'm not, I'm not going to talk to you. Good luck with that story. And, and that's fine. That's fine. Um, sometimes I enjoy that. And the older I get and the more I do this job, I kind of like that. Enjoy it. It's more of a challenge, <laughs> frankly. So I'm going to write about you. You don't have to talk to me, but I think it's worth your while to talk to me. And you are very productive. You have written several books and you're a, uh, an active journalist. So do you have a, a new title or another project that you're working on and you can, can tell us about? No. And my wife really wants me to come up with one because uh, I get antsy and I get and I get annoying when I don't have a, a, a new project to, to throw myself into. Um, I'm always thinking of new ones. The problem is with these books, and I've written six at this point. I've also written two books with my two sons, and they're about sports, and they're about they're for young readers, and they're for about people who overcome challenges. And 
obstacles in life and they're trying to be inspirational. But the thing about all my books is they're all encompassing. You're 24 seven. You're thinking about them. You're, you're involved in it. You're down in that basement at 3 a.m. and it's cold and the family's sleeping and you've got to really enjoy the topic. And it's rare. It's, it's, I'm, I'm very grateful that I found in my life six that I really enjoy. And you don't know if people are going to want to read them or not. You spend a year, in my case, I, I, I drive myself crazy. I do them kind of quickly, but a year, two years working on a book. And you, you don't know after you're done if, if it's going to be good and people like it or not. You've got to enjoy it. So it's not easy to find topics that you can throw yourself into and spend a couple of years and be interested and be learning. I do this to, to, to learn. So I'm always looking for good new ideas. And if people want to reach out with, with suggestions, I'm, I'm eager to hear them. I guess they appear when you least expect them. Yeah, or I, I'm, I'm lucky. I, mean, I work at the Wall Street Journal, so there's always news. There's always something that I'm chasing. And I, I like being here. I, I could just write books, I guess, but I really enjoy writing stories for the Wall Street Journal and working here. So there's always tomorrow, right? There's always tomorrow where there's some new company that blows up or there's some new breakthrough, some individual, some some something that's changing the world. So I'm very, very gr grateful and, and lucky to be in a seat where I get to write about it day to day. And then I say, you know what? Actually, I think this might be a book. So that's my, you asked my modus operandi. That's that's my approach to life and, and work. And for those interested in reading more about the quant revolution and its impact on financial markets, besides the man who solved the market, uh, which books or sources do you recommend? Oh, um, there is a book, um, I'm blanking here. Who is that other pioneer, a quant pioneer? Um, Ed Thorpe? Ed Thorpe, yes, exactly. Ed Thorpe has written books of his own, which are really good and enjoyable. And um, I'd recommend those. Thank you so much, Greg, for taking the time to come on the podcast and uh, share your insights from investigating this fascinating topic. Do you have something more you want to add before we finish up? Oh, the only thing I would add is um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on uh, Twitter. Um, I'm email easy to find. So I love uh, even constructive criticism. Sometimes my best sources are people who said, hey, Greg, I read your article. I read your book. I liked it. But <laughs> and, and here's something I would have done differently. Here's something you missed. And you'd be some, you'd be surprised how many people, you, as long as you're polite about it, you don't call it fake news, all that kind of stuff, uh, which I hear sometimes. But um, we're open to criticism and improving. I'm, I'm always trying to improve as a writer. So feel free to reach out. Thank you, Greg. This has been a fascinating discussion. Oh, it was a lot of fun. A lot of questions I hadn't heard. So that was enjoyable to do. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Good luck with the podcast. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by RedEye. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore RedEye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.